The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee are two of the trio of economists who just carried away this year's Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. Their work's all about how people don't behave the way theories and models generally predict they will. And they use a method called randomised controlled trials that's a bit like the process used to test new drugs. They stopped by Times Square to talk about some of their more surprising findings, to tell us what they say to critics of the so-called randomista movement, and tell us who they'd tip for the next Nobel Prize. I'm John Foley, and you're listening to The Exchange. One of the things that is, it seems to me a fascinating outcome of your work is this, um, this teaching that people don't necessarily follow the money, that financial incentives don't, don't necessarily predict what people are going to do. Um, thinking about this as a non-economist, this seems almost obvious. I mean, people, I mean, certainly we don't individually think of ourselves as people who robotically do what's predicted by financial incentives. Why did it take economics so long to come to the conclusion that people don't just do what narrow financial incentives would predict they will? In part, I think because it's uh, very, very much uh, the air we breathe and the water we drink. Uh, in fact, we I gave a talk recently at the LSE and there was a group of uh, very good, uh, very committed economists, mostly working actually with the same type of methods that we did. And they were like, we are not ready to give up on financial incentives. They are so important. So they've really been... They are kind of, the idea that people are very sensitive to financial incentives is really often the engine that make our economic models tick. And therefore, I think it had the potential to become a blind spot, even as the evidence has accumulated by economists themselves that, in fact, in many cases, people do not follow the money. So can you give us an example of a situation where that came through, a, a, a result maybe that particularly surprised you in terms of how people behaved when you put them to this test? If you think about the Greek crisis, I mean, for among some of the young groups, the un- unemployment rate was 50% or more. O- over that whole period, 60,000 Greeks moved. That's it. And they could have moved anywhere in Europe where the economy was doing fine. They could have gone to Germany. Uh, this was all open borders. 60,000 moved at the deepest crisis that any country has had in Europe ever. It just shows that you know, there must be other things. These guys were sitting at home. They're, even their families, you know, the, the government was kind of broke and the pensions were falling. So there was like, there's no one had any money, but they still didn't move. And this is something that you've you've talked about in the new book, um, Good Economics for Hard Times, as a global phenomenon, right? People don't move, even though we think that they're going to get up and pack their bags and head to a place where opportunity is greater than where they are now. It seems that that doesn't, for some reason, happen. Yes, I think a very strongly shared uh, intuition, presumption, is that people are very powerfully motivated by the differences between the life they had and the material life they could have elsewhere. And that is one reason why people are so scared of migration is not so much the current migration levels, but it's the fear that should we open the borders more and make it easier for people to come, uh, this would be opening floodgates where millions and hundreds of millions, I don't know how many people would come. But in fact, when you look at 
situations where there are no barriers. For example, the Greek example, where within Europe they could have gone anywhere they wanted, or within countries, for example, within the US. What you notice that what is striking is how immobile people are, and that's true within countries. That's even more true in a sense across countries where in addition from the fact that people rather stay home if they have the opportunity to, there are you know, barriers that make it difficult for them to move. How does, as I was reading that part of the book, I started thinking about China, which is a place that I lived for, for a few years. And China is a place that does have mass migration, which is seen to be kind of economically driven. I think a third of the workforce in China is a migrant workforce. How do you think about that, for example, in next to what you're talking about as a global trend of people basically trying to stay where they are, even when economic incentives would suggest they're going to move? Well, I I think the Chinese created a particular kind of set of pathways. So, I mean, it's not just that they created jobs. They also created, uh, the whole process was extremely regulated. Uh, You have Basically, dormitories have to be provided. So a bunch of stuff that discourages people from going. I think, like, where will I find housing? The cities are are full. They are kind of uh, creaking at the uh, at the margins. And you know, where will I put myself? Who's going to? How will I survive in that world? Whereas I think the Chinese very consciously created pipelines and. For and they controlled it too. I mean, there was both sides of it, which is too many people couldn't go. There was always the hookah system, which was very much a way to say, if you are, if you're not permitted to go, you can't go, and if you're permitted to go, you you are then will set up the infrastructure for it. So they built housing to make that happen. It required factories to have places where people could stay, so that there was no one on the streets. There was a very conscious investment. So I'm not saying that people can't be made to do it. It's just the Chinese very consciously went about doing it. Uh, that kind of brings us on to this question of mapping countries onto one another. And the part, uh, an important part of what you've done with randomized controlled te- testing is, is that it focuses on maybe not small, but on, on localized communities. And then the next question is, do people in Kenya behave the same way as people in India or Indonesia, but also in the United States? And your new book, um, it takes a much more global view, I think, than the last book, um, Poor Economics, uh, in, in that it focuses a lot on, for example, the United States. And people are clearly much more aware, I think, than they were even in 20, uh, 2011, when your last book came out, of pockets of poverty and, and almost de-development within rich countries. So how have you found that your approach, which was grounded on some developing economies, has mapped onto what we think of as rich countries? Well, that's kind of a very nice example of uh, transferring uh, uh, knowledge from the south to the north, if you will. Uh, There are two classes of findings that could be relevant. One is uh, not so much a finding as an approach, which is to say uh, what really we champion for the study of developing countries is don't trust your intuitions because most of the time it's going to be wrong. And we discovered that very early along with many other when the movement of randomized controlled trials started, I think the most stacking lesson early in this movement was how you almost never get what you expect when you actually set up an experiment. The first experiment that Michael Kramer set up was to demonstrate the role of RC, uh, randomized controlled trial by picking up an obvious example, which is what 
textbooks would have necessarily lead to improved learning. And the biggest lesson of this is that actually they don't. So it's a long story of why, etc., which subsequently we unspooled. But the most important thing is that time after time after time, you're surprised about your intuition, either as policymaker or as economist or as regular human being. So the first thing I think that we are bringing to the table in studying the type of problems that are present in the West today, including in the U.S., is just leave your intuition in the, <laughs> in the changing room and look at the facts. And for example, the fact that people don't move is one that is very much against the grain. The fact that when people do come, even when there are big waves of migration, that doesn't actually hurt the wage of the native worker is another one that is very, very well established empirically, not by us, by a big literature, and does uh, in, and also goes against our kind of natural intuition. So that, that I think is maybe the most important thing we are bringing to, to the West is a change in attitude. And the second is there are also some uh, results, some findings that apply uh, from the from the south to the north. The example that you gave of people being much less sensitive to financial incentive than we think is something that um, we very much established or was established by tons of research in the developing countries quite rigorously and also find an echo in, in the West. I mean, this has quite a big read across to some of the, uh, one of the key debates that right now in the United States is about the effect that globalization or tr- free, free-ish trade has had on communities, on factory towns, for example. And one of the suggestions of how to counter some of those effects has been basically planting new investment down in places that are supposed to become hubs or magnets for, for people. We've seen Amazon touting around for locations for its second headquarters. We have you know, JP Morgan moving employees to Dallas and people setting up businesses in Nashville and so on. How does what you've learned, um, what, what do you think of those kind of policies and those approaches to um, helping people who are in communities that have been, in some cases, decimated by the effects of globalized trade? So I think those examples are interesting. And some, some of those... Um for example, Amazon very much went for the places that are actually currently expensive and successful, and others did not. And uh, and I think that there's an interesting lesson there, which is that I think there's a trade-off between taking a you know going to the places that are already doing well, which is that they provide all, all the advantages that you see in Manhattan of of just great amenities. You know, when, once a, a community goes into a tailspin, every the amenities go first. In a sense, the opera is no longer viable. The theater shuts down. The restaurants die. So, and therefore, and then young people who you want to recruit, the more ambitious young people, don't want to move to the middle of nowhere. So, in some ways, I think, especially with this increasing emphasis among the young on kind of this this form of more collective consumption, not a big car, a big house, but you know, I'd rather live in a vibrant place. It's very hard to actually do that exercise of sort of bringing a business to a, a, a location. Uh, so I think you have to intervene before. You have to 
kind of anticipate that this, once the city unravels, it's kind of very hard to put it back together. It's it needs to be the you have to anticipate that if this trade shock is going to you know hit the big factory in this town, basically that town will die. And once the horse has bolted and the stable door is swinging in the wind, uh, what can what can we do about it? Do we need a new theory of? Uh, I mean, you're you're from people would would call you development economists. Do we need a new school of redevelopment economics that focuses on how to get back places that previously were wealthy and have now fallen into disrepair? I guess I I feel like at that point it might be just too hard to do that it might well be that then you want to take the chinese strategy of in a, ver- a version of that to make it much easier for every people to move out actually help them move out um in in perhaps in groups i mean this is stuff that actually nobody's really understood i don't want to i'm also speculating because i don't think there is an even a, a, the basis of understanding for this and what what that the policies that would call forth would require some work like the work we do in developing countries, kind of randomized control trials, try new things. Because I think it's really, at that point, it's very hard to get businesses in. So you're probably thinking, get people out. But it's just people find, especially in this world where the real estate markets are completely topsy-turvy and people's, most of people's uh, assets are in real estate. So, you know, suppose you are, you know, you have no, you can't think of how you would buy a house somewhere else because your the real estate values have fallen where you are, and therefore your your house is now worthless. You can go somewhere else, but you would have, you now you have a home. There you'll have to pay for a home, and the salaries won't go up because you probably lost a decent job. So you know what's your what's is not. It's not easy, hard to see why people don't move. It's just scary. So I think we have to think of mechanisms that actually enable them. And you, we have. As we head towards 2020 to the next presidential election here in the U.S., we have some very big ideas that seem to uh, be close to what you're talking about. But and, and I know you talk about some of these in the book as well. But um, the two that come to mind are the wealth tax, which both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are both proposing. Also, this idea of universal basic income, which Andrew Yang and some others are uh, putting forward as as one solution. Can you just talk us through your views on those two policies and whether there is any mileage in in either of those. So in, in the book, we we come down strongly in favor of the wealth tax. I, I, I think that more generally, we, we argue that, you know, the American, given the extent to which people are now increasingly buffeted by shocks of outside their control, the American idea of a small state is kind of, uh, has had its time, if it ever had one. It's, right now, we, we just can't afford to live in the world where we, we, basically people can't rely on the state. And that has multiple pieces. One of those pieces is revenue. The other pieces, I think the state also has lost legitimacy. And there was, a, in my view, in our view, a concerted assault on the legitimacy of the state from the right, uh, which has contributed to it. So this is not this is not just accidental. It has lost legitimacy. It needs to be restored. Partly it has to be restored by being, um, I think, mindful of all the things that we just discussed, the things about the fact that people are people and not, uh, you know, a, a person somewhere. There's individuals that are getting hurt. And those people rarely get the attention they want. 
and that's part of part of the failure of the state, and it needs to be re- rethought. I think, and I think the wealth tax is just one of the taxes. I think eventually, I think there, there should need, needs to be more broad-based taxation in general. I think on the universal basic income, I think part of the our problem with it is precisely again what we discussed, which is that the need for individuals to find meaning in their work kind of militates against universal basic income, which is, takes a view that individuals are talented, they can find their uh, their uh, place in if you can just give them basic economic support. And our sense is that that's, that might be I, mean, I think individuals are talented, but all those things we just discussed about costs of moving, costs of finding things, costs of just being an unknown person, being, you know, I'm 40 and I've lost my job in furniture making and I'm looking for a job in, you know, steel or whatever. Steel is a bad example. Some, something else. And that, uh, how, how do I get into that? So all of those things need to be addressed. And in some, some, some sense, those things are targeted. They're targeted to people who are, who have had major uh, disturbances in their life. And, and in a sense, that's the, against the spirit of universal basic income. I think, so we've been arguing very much that it's possible to target in an economy like India, in the U- United States, and it's possible to do it better. Have you been approached by any of the candidates for the 2020 election asking for your help? No. Would you, if the call came, would you consider trading Cambridge, Massachusetts for Washington? No, uh, but uh, we would be uh, delighted to provide inputs uh, to anybody, really. Uh, this is our job, in a sense. And and uh, campaigns are a good time, maybe, because this is when uh, things are not yet formed up. Like, once people get to government, they have to do what they promised that they were going to do. Uh, so uh, campaigns are a good moment to... To provide inputs. There are lots of people who are extremely delighted that you um, and Michael Kramer took the Nobel Prize. There have been some people, some of your even former Nobel winners, who are a bit more critical of some of your approaches. Um, I'm thinking of Paul Romer. I'm thinking of Angus Deaton, who both raised questions about whether um, this this method of randomised control testing, whether it's a method rather than a theory, whether it's too localised, whether you you skirt the big questions about why poverty exists and so on. What do you say? What do you say to those critics of what you're doing? It does seem to me that, in a sense, they're kind of criticizing you for not coming up with a unified theory of everything that answers all of the questions in one go. But it also gives an impression of an, a discipline that is not very good at collaboration. Um, we get the sense that economists aren't very good at working together. So I'm going to let Abhijit answer the big question, but I'll I'll just leave Roma out of it. Is one of the few Nobel Prize winners who has not, <laughs> who has not objected <laughs> to, to our work, and in fact is quite sympathetic to the idea of uh, establishing the facts and not being too wrapped up in your theory. Didn't he once though compare? He he said that RCT was like offering a patient Botox to make them look younger, but ignoring the fact that they have cancer. He might have, but I, 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 he, he was very generous in his response, and I, he may have even changed his views slightly. That's not I mean, very that's, yeah. that's, I think, I mean, it's great that he has. Uh, I think on the bigger question, I think there are two separate issues here. One is, I think 
people have sometimes an illusion about what questions they can answer. You know, I think it's fine to say we would love to know how to find the key to that's going to, you know, make everyone live for a thousand years and have healthy lives. But it's not that's not a question we're about to answer. So we tend to prefer to answer questions we can answer. There are lots of questions we can't answer. Uh, we tend to skirt them. Uh, I think other people confront them, but I'm not sure I get a lot from their answers. I mean, I think the answers are maybe sometimes useful, but m most of the time it seems like, you know, and we could also believe the opposite and anything in between. So I, I'm, I'm less less uh, concerned about the fact that we don't take on these questions, because I think we calibrate ourselves by what's a question we can answer, and in that domain, I think our ambition has been growing enormously. I mean, we started by doing textbooks in schools, and now we are doing, you know, how to how to redesign government welfare policies to be more more responsive to people's needs. And those are the, just the magnitude of it has expanded enormously. I, I don't th feel defensive about it. You can think of like each of this as uh, being one dot that eventually, if you step back, gives you a a picture that's uh, quite complete, where it, it might take some effort of conceptualizing everything you you see. Like when you see a painting by Seurat, if you look it from too close by, it's dot dot dot. But if you step back, it's like people having picnic uh, near, near the Seine. So, and we in our own work do this back and forth. When we wrote the book Poor Economics, that was an effort to step back and see. Well, let's see. In development, what have we learned across these big, uh, big things, including institutions, political economy, etc., from the combination of these of these things? And then in this new book, it's a little bit the same thing of saying, well, let's reflect on the literature that actually often we have not even contributed to, but we can read, and on balance, what are the big things we are learning? And we have learned big things, but they have been learned not by, you know reaching from the moon and, and landing in a pond, but by setting up the, you know, step by step by step. On the, the profession as a whole, I think it's also worth reflecting. I think the only reason why we could get the Nobel Prize now, and maybe we could not have gotten it ever, but certainly at this age that we are at, is because we have worked quite hard in... Uh, creating a culture in the field of development economics, which actually is very productive. And if you look at development today, many people use randomized controlled trials. Many people do not. Uh, they meet at conferences uh, with their different approaches, and the, uh, its development as a field is actually a very big, very collaborative tent where you have uh, a lot of back and forth be between people coming at the same problem from a more macro perspective or from a more micro perspective or trying to, you know, making efforts to make them work together. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. But uh, uh, people talk together. And I think a lot of the criticism you're seeing, they are from outside that field, actually. And not necessarily from people who have much uh, knowledge or experience with it recently. One last question. Um, who would you nominate for the Nobel Economics Prize next year? I, I'm going to give three names. Um, Paul Milgram, who is one of the 
great economic theorists of our time, um, and my and our two colleagues, uh, Josh Angrist and Daruna Semuglu. Esther, do you support that nomination? Um, um, I'm supporting that nomination and would like add to the list uh, um, David Card and uh, Hido Impens, who uh, have been uh, um, really central along with uh, Josh Angrist in uh, what has sometimes been called the credibility revolution. Uh, which took, really started in on U.S. domestic policy work, uh, issues of labor markets and public policies, and really starting to get extremely serious about what is the, what what is the impact of a particular policy, or you know, changing the minimum wage, or and how do you think about these questions? Get as close as possible to a, a rigorous causal answer, which really changed the whole field, number one, and number two, uh, paved the way for randomized control trials to become a tool. Well, Esther Abhijit, thank you so much for joining us. Good Economics for Hard Times is out on November the 12th. Um, good luck with it and enjoy your new life as Nobel Prize winners. And thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Exchange. You can find more episodes on iTunes or wherever you go for your podcasts. You'll also find more of our views at breakingviews.com. I'd like to thank Ross Shoulder, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. Find us here next time at The Exchange.